You're listening to episode 198 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchberg, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. Joining me once again is Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Church History here at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Dr. Strange, how are you doing today? Doing great. It's always good to be with you, Jared, and to come into the homes and wherever our listeners may be. We're very thankful for all of you. We're grateful for your support of us, for your prayers, and we continue to labor on your behalf to train uh, men and women to serve in the kingdom. Now, before we continue into our next subject here, which is going to be some church councils, uh, reflecting on the last episode that we did on monasticism, Dr. Strange, can you elaborate a little bit more uh, to, and speak to the rule of St. Benedict a little bit? Yeah, they, I mentioned that, and but it becomes so very important. The rule of St. Benedict was written sometime around 530, 540, um, and becomes really, and remains to this day for some, what you might say the, the the kind of centerpiece of regulated communal life. Uh, there was communal life that was less organized and regulated, but there was communal life uh, that that developed, uh, particularly in the later Middle Ages, that was more you might say austere and severe. Benedict is kind of the middle of the road mm-hmm. and and represents this. So I would recommend to any of our listeners, you can easily find online, I have uh, here in my hand, the rule of St. Benedict that comes to 32 pages, and it's 73 chapters. And these chapters, if you really want to know how is their life organized, this really gets into that in some detail. And uh, it talks about, it begins by talking about the different kinds of monks. We've talked about this, uh, Kenobites, Anchorites, and so forth. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about what actual life is like. For example, chapter 33 forbids the private possession of anything without the leave of the abbot. So you need to be clear here. Priests take vows, as I think most of our listeners would know, of, of celibacy and obedience. Monks take an additional vow of poverty. Mm. And poverty means that they can't have any personal property whatsoever. That's the interpretation. And so you would occasionally get in the monasteries searches, room searches, Mm. to see whether somebody had secreted away something uh, that you were to have two changes of two clothes. One could be washed and one could be worn. And it also says in chapter 48, uh, labor... Uh, physical labor, <clears throat> daily manual labor is appropriate, and it should never be less than five hours a day. And this is included with all of the regimen of the prayer. So life in the monastery was not a cakewalk. It was it was highly regimented, and I just commend this to you for your reading. I could go through a lot of these, but you can you can go through it yourself. You can just look up the rule of Saint Benedict. Uh, if you look at a, something like a Wikipedia article or Britannica article, they'll even give you a summary of all of the particulars of that if you don't want to read through that document. But that's something that people might find interesting. Continuing through the Middle Ages then, let's look at the 5th, 6th, and 7th 
of the church councils. But before we do so, Dr. Strange, remind us of uh, the Christological controversies that you touched on in the ancient church episodes. Yes, um, this is so important. We're always uh, saying this to our students. It's something that, that I emphasize in ancient and medieval church. My colleagues in systematic theology emphasize it. Uh, if you're going to be examined uh, by a church body, uh, whether it is a consistory in the presence uh, of the classes, uh, whether it's a presbytery, whatever the case may be, when you're ex- being examined in church history and systematic theology, you'll customarily be asked about the first seven councils, mm-hmm. and that's really what we're thinking about right now. Uh, councils five, six, and seven occurred during the Middle Ages. But let me just refresh our, as you've asked me to, refresh our listeners. The first council was Nicaea 325, and that council said that the Son, that is Jesus Christ, is consubstantial, that is, he's co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Uh, The next council was Constantinople in 381. That shored up Trinitarian theology that reaffirmed Nicaea, and also particularly there, they affirmed the deity of the Holy Spirit. Ephesus in 431 condemned Nestorianism and Pelagianism. Uh, Again, Jared, I'm not really talking about what all of these are because we talked about them. So you can go back and listen. Uh, if you would like to. A Chalcedon in 451, very importantly, uh, really caps off a lot of the particulars of that time and said that Christ is two natures in one person without confuse, uh, without confusion, change, division, or separation. Uh, and so that was a kind of an accomplishment, you might say, the church going to the scriptures interfacing and interacting with heretics and arch-heretics who were teaching contrary to the scriptures uh, testifies in the ways that I just mentioned. Uh, But it wasn't all quite wrapped up at that point. Uh, You had the second council of Constantinople that met in 553, and that actually found the church still racked by the Monophysite controversy. The Monophysite controversy was addressed in Chalcedon in 451, and the Monophysite controversy was the error that was taught that Jesus was one person and one nature. Uh, you might recall that these Monophysites, or Eutyches was the, was the arch-heretic, taught that at the at theoretical point, at the moment of conception, Christ, as it were, had two natures. He had a human nature that came and met, as it were, his divine nature, but was swallowed up, so to speak, Mm -hmm. by the divine nature and just continues then as one person with one nature, a divine nature. Uh, Chalcedon sought to redress that by saying, no, he has two natures, and those two natures uh, are not confused or changed or divided or separated when they come together in the one person. Uh, but there were still those who were, were so concerned that this was a denial of the unity uh, of the person of Christ, particularly that unity that had been so emphasized at Ephesus in 431 in what we call the hypostatic union, yep. in which the two natures come together in one person. So basically what the, the Second Council of Constantinople, which is the fifth 
of the church councils addresses is this concern of the Monophysites. And it's uh, there's a lot to talk about here. So I'm just going to speak summarily to say that what the what the council ultimately uh, promulgated or announced, it was convoked, I should say this, by the, the great emperor Justinian, mm-hmm. uh, who we could otherwise talk a lot about him. And all the bishops were, were pretty much Eastern. There were 165 bishops who came there to Constantinople. And the outcome of the council was to say and to affirm once again the oneness of Jesus Christ, acknowledging that, yes, there are two natures, but being concerned that some had taken the two natures too divisively and wanting to say these two natures are in one person. So that council really, um, the bottom line is they did a number of things at the council. They had 14 anathemas, uh, <laughs> but the the outcome uh, of this council was to reaffirm uh, the oneness of this Christ who has two natures. Sort of, it's a matter of emphasis, you might say. So Ephesus in 431 emphasized the oneness. Chalcedon in 451 emphasized the two-ness. Now we're back to the second council in 553, which is emphasizing the oneness. Well, there's going to be one more council uh, about this to kind of wrap up the Christological controversies. Uh, the third council of Constantinople, and that is in 680. And that was called by Constantine the Fourth to settle what's called the Monothelite controversy. Now we had the Monophysite controversy, which was declaring the Monophysites, as I just said, declared that Christ had monophysitism means one nature. Monothelite, for those of you who remember your Greek, uh, monothelo has to do with one will. So there were some who were teaching that Jesus Christ only has one will, but the council ultimately proclaimed that Jesus Christ has two wills. It confirmed, excuse me, two wills and two operations in Christ, rejecting all physical unity of the two wills but admitting the existence of a moral unity resulting from the complete harmony between the divine and the human will and the God-man. To put it a little plainer, <laughs> what this means is that Christ in his human nature had a will right. because human nature has a will. And of course, in his divine nature, he had a will. But the will of the human nature, and how do we know such Well, he says, I came not to do my own will, and he's referring to the will of his human nature, but the will of him who sent me, which is the divine will, which is one with the Father and the Spirit. God as God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has a single divine will. Christ as the God-man had eternally that divine will. Mm -hmm. When he became a man... He added to his deity humanity, part of which involved a human will. And so he says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And perhaps the most poignant expression of this occurs in the Garden of Gethsemane Mm -hmm. when he contemplated the cup. And he said, as he looked at the cup, which was the cup of the wrath of God, 
that imagery comes all the way from the Old Testament. And he had to drink this cup. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, my human will, but thy will, that divine will that I share with you, let that be done. And he drank that cup to the bitterest dregs. Mm -hmm. And he suffered for you and for me. And so he had a human will just like we do. Uh, and that human will was perfectly submitted and fully submitted to the divine will. So again, that sort of rounds it off, you see, um, the the oneness from Ephesus 431, the twoness from Chalcedon 451, the oneness from Constantinople, second Constantinople 553, and the Two-ness from Third Constantinople, 680, kind of rounds off. It it gives a full biblical picture yeah. yep. of who Jesus is. So now tell us about the Seventh Council then. Is this the one where we as Protestants begin to differ? The Seventh Council is called uh, the Second Council of Nicaea. Remember that first one was back in 325. This is the second, and this council condemned iconoclasm. And iconoclasm is the view that, um, well, icons, I think most people know what icons are. Those are representations, and in the Eastern sense, they're, they're tactile sorts of flat yeah. representations of either, say, Jesus or the Father or of the saints, and uh, they're developed to tradition in the East, not the worst the the word used was not to worship these but to venerate them right so the veneration of these icons the iconoclast said this is unbiblical we should not be venerating this and there were a number of concerns there the emperor even said this is this is part of what's blocking the conversion of Jews and Muslims mm. because they're very opposed the Jews and the Muslims are very opposed to these icons and this is not helping um, and I would just say this, yes, we would take a kind of iconoclastic position uh, as Protestants. Uh, it comes to a, a head, you might say, the expression of that comes to a head in the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, in question 109, which speaks about the sins forbidden in the second commandment. And it says, are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, in any wise approving, any religious worship not instituted by God himself, the making any representation of God of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshiping of it or God in it or by it, the making of any representation of feigned deities and all worship of them or service belonging to them and so forth. Uh, it goes on. So we see that there is a, a concern in historic Protestantism, both in the continental expression of it and certainly here in Westminster's expression of it. So then why are the Eastern Orthodox churches often called the Church of the Seven Councils? Well, the Eastern Orthodox Church um, is called the Church of the Seven Councils because it's after this, and we'll see this, uh, in 1054 there will be the formal break between the East and the West. But this is the last council at which the East and the West are in agreement together. And as far as the Eastern Church is concerned, the Orthodox Church, as it's called in all the places in its Eastern manifestations, 
uh, this council is the last council that that has significance for it. Uh, its theology doesn't so much develop doctrinally, but develops in terms more of practice and worship. Next time, Dr. Strange gives us an overview of the historic fall of Rome in the 5th century and the conversion of the barbaric tribes. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with friends or family. Your support helps us bring more engaging content to your ears and helps us foster not just a community of lifelong learners, but thoughtful practitioners. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.